0: Welcome to Physicians Helping Attorneys Helping People. When people are injured due to negligence or while on the job, they need all the help they can get. Doctors Armin Feldman and Mike Bummer help ensure they get it. Join them as they discuss the newest medical subspecialty of medical legal consulting. Learn how attorneys can gain a competitive advantage in PI, workers' comp, and medical malpractice cases. Armin and Mike can help you better understand the medical issues in your cases, leading to larger settlement amounts and the best possible medical care for clients. They can help save you time and increase case value, all without breaking the bank. Let's get started.
1: Welcome to the episode. I'm Dr. Armin Feldman, and as always, I'm here with my friend, colleague, and partner in Physicians Legal Consultants, Dr. Mike Bummer.
2: Hi Armin and hello to our listeners. It's great to be back. We' have had a busy few weeks here. I know the holidays passed and we've been very uh, very excitedly busy with work. Uh, we've had a lot of various cases and matters come through. So we've we've kind of had to delay this episode a little bit, but here we are back again and uh, it's you know um, amidst this time, I wanted to mention to you, Armin, We didn't talk about this yet, but there was a documentary on Netflix that was released within the last ten days, called mm-hmm. "You You Are What You Eat." And I can't remember from previous episodes if I've talked about uh, being, you know, plant-based and incorporating more plants into our diet for my family. But mm-hmm. this this documentary is very interesting. There's actually. Um, not It's not just like a watch it because you believe in a thing, but they did a, a twin study, identical twins, um, and they fed them. Did you hear about this?
1: I just saw it. It's funny, Mike. I just saw it today on the internet. But go
2: ahead. They followed identical twins, and they gave one twin a healthy, standard, omnivore diet. Like, you know, I've been saying chicken Alfredo and, you know, uh, various, uh, healthy versions of what, what we would, what we would go out to a restaurant and order. And then they gave the other twin a vegan diet, not even all whole food plant-based and, you know, things that people think taste like cardboard and whatnot, but just, (laughs) just avoiding, uh, animal products like, uh, dairy and meats. And, uh, Really interesting. They did a great job with it. The people going through it were pretty skeptical on, on both ends, and they're very real people. And the study, I think the results were pretty surprising, and they weren't, again, it wasn't like as, this big push of an agenda. So I'd recommend you and any of our listeners to check it out. It's four mini parts, so it's only like 45 minutes uh, per episode, and it's really well done.
1: Mention the name again.
2: It's called You Are What You Eat. Okay. Yeah. All right. What, what about you? What? Tell us something that you, besides work that you, you did in the last week or so.
1: Right. Well, you know, we've been so busy. All we've really had a chance to talk about since the holidays is work. So we really haven't had much of a chance to mm-hmm. catch up. But funny thing is, I was going to tell you something food related as well. Now, this isn't exactly a big deal, but we're uh, really good friends with our neighbors across the street. And they took us to a restaurant that is close to where we live. And it turns out that the food was fantastic. The prices were right. And the way things have been since the pandemic, you know, restaurants are such so hit and miss, right? So the the food may not be good, the prices are high. And I was excited, Holly and I were excited to find a restaurant so close to the house with such great food, such reasonable prices. And where uh, our neighbors might call us on a weekday and say, hey, let's run over there and have dinner. And so (laughs) it's a small thing, but it was uh, really exciting.
2: Why did you not try it before?
1: Didn't know about it. It, Yeah, just didn't know it existed.
2: Yeah. What type of cuisine is it?
1: it's well it's called the parkway grill and one of the interesting things about it is the menu is about as long as war and peace right so it's got a little bit of everything and uh, anything i've tried has been great so uh not a big deal but one other thing i would say is one interesting thing is we didn't know this Uh, we obviously we gravitated towards one another but um we both follow uh, uh, plant-based diets.
2: I know. Isn't it funny yeah. that we don't even talk about that at all?
1: Yeah. Right.
2: <laughs> Contrary but, to the jokes on the internet that, you know, the uh, you, you find out if someone's vegan within the first 30 seconds you meet them. That's just not my <laughs> style. But
1: <laughs> Right, right. Well, Holly and I have been doing this for over 20 years now.
2: Oh, it's great. Cool. Yeah.
1: So I think we have a really great show today. Mike, you've got a really interesting case. And then um, when we discuss today's episode, I want to talk a little bit about a dep- uh, depression that's caused by trauma. It's such an important issue. We haven't talked about it. And I think it'll be helpful for our attorney listeners, our physician listeners, and anyone that's really listening.
2: Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, my case is from a few months ago. And I have a various number, you know, we have attorneys that use us somewhat frequently because of our consultation abilities. And I should just mention before I start, if anyone listening at any point has a case that they want to discuss with us, one of the easiest ways to just is to send us a message to comments at physicianshelpingattorneys.com or look below in the show notes, there's a link to schedule a meeting. You can visit our website. and uh, but, but again, send us an email, give us a call. We're happy to talk about anything. But
1: yeah, we really love to talk with you.
2: I don't even know if you remember this, Armin, from uh, a while back, but we have, a, we have a client that reached out who had a case kind of, that was pretty well along. This is a malpractice case. Mm-hmm. and The case involved a woman who had a gallbladder removal. They call it a laparoscopic cholecystectomy. Yeah. And during the case, the surgeon went in and saw that she had a lot of adhesions or scar tissue around the area of the gallbladder. Mm -hmm. And this surgeon was particularly well trained and felt comfortable at the time. And the note dictated was pretty elaborate that these adhesions existed and the bowel was kind of nearby, and there were other organs nearby. And he went ahead and proceeded with the surgery and commented on having to take adhesions down from the bowel and whatnot. And completed the surgery. It took it took quite some time. And in follow-up, the woman did pretty well. But she developed some foul-smelling discharge. Uh, and also started having some foul smelling urine. And this happened over the following months. And the the surgeon wasn't really sure what to do, so he sent her to a urologist. He he continued to follow her and reassure her. And long story short, uh about 8 months later, it was found that she had developed a fistula, which is a track mm-hmm. connecting a portion of her her bowels, to her bladder. Wow. And that's obviously very serious. And so she actually did have stool coming out in her urine. Oh my and gosh. it had not been detected appropriately, uh, potentially, and at least right away. And she ultimately had to have part of her bowels removed and additional surgery. And so th- this case, though, had already kind of materialized quite a bit before it got to me. Mm-hmm. And the attorney, our attorney said, you know, I had a standard of care report from a doc that said that a general surgeon that said that this cholecystectomy should not have been, should not have been done. Mm-hmm. And I ran into a problem though, because it, it we're due for, you know, proceeding with the case and we hit a milestone and he disappeared on me. He said that he he can't support the case anymore.
1: So what did he ask you to do?
2: He asked me to find another expert. And so when we find experts for all of our listeners, uh, it's important to know that we don't just forward you a name. We don't just send you someone that we've worked with who is a name that, um, you know, we don't just look at some database and just say, oh, here, call this guy. We actually look into the case, try to understand the salient elements of it, and then find an expert that is, aligns the credentials, the training, and even to somewhat you know, taking the temperature of, of an opinion and having a brief discussion with that expert on your behalf as your consultant, as someone who's you know, providing this affordable but very valuable service to our, our attorney clients.
1: That's really being a consultant and not just turfing off a name to someone.
2: That's exactly right. Yeah. And so, in doing this, though, the reason this was interesting and I, I thought it would be good to talk about today mm-hmm. is I wasn't so sure that this ultimately was going to be a fruitful case because when I looked at the preoperative discussion, when I looked at the surgeon's notes, when I looked at the op report. I think I understood why his initial expert who gave him the affidavit of merit, the initial signature on mm-hmm. on the, you know, three or four sentence report that allowed him to file the case. I was able to tease out that I think he that surgeon bailed because he was a bit too aggressive at the time and he was probably worried about getting, you know, put on the stand, deposed and really having to answer the tough questions about the fact that this surgeon was qualified to, mm-hmm. in fact, do the surgery. This micro bowel perforation, tiny hole that was probably, uh, ca- I think the causation of the case was actually quite clear. I do think it was a surgical complication, uh, that a damage to the bowel that resulted in this, this fistula formation.
1: Yeah, one but, thing that, uh, that I just wanted to re- uh, emphasize is this was a, a, a micro. Puncture. So, does that mean that it probably wasn't even visible to the surgeon?
2: Yeah, there's almost no way this was going to be visible. The way these tissues exist, uh, the surface of the bowel, there it's a very thin layer, thin wall, and even if you just kind of, uh, we'll say, uh, damage or or reduce the. Uh, the strength of the bowel wall, sometimes even a hole can develop later. So maybe Mm -hmm. you didn't even create a hole that day, but you undermined the strength of the bowel wall. You then later could get a a, a hole that appears still Mm -hmm. caused by the surgery. And ultimately, if the detection of this was worse, if there was breaches in standard of care or there was poor follow-up or poor testing, Certainly, causation is not a question here, but really it came down to the crux of this case that the attorney had sent me and just asked for another expert. He said, yeah, "Give right. me an expert to support this case." I could have sent him four different surgical experts that that we've worked with together, Armin, and these experts would have been happy to charge their. Well, I shouldn't sure. say happy, but they would have. They would have um, sent. My attorney, their retainer, their sure. you know, sizable retainer, they would have reviewed the case in probably, you know, two to six hours, and then they would would have concluded almost exactly what I did, which was right. that this was in fact a judgment call. You know, my, my attorney asked me, Well, couldn't the surgeon have decided to not do the procedure and then mm-hmm. the complication wouldn't have occurred. And I said yes. Absolutely, that could have been a a possibility, Uh, but the surgeon was trained to work with adhesive disease in the bowel, and the surgeon made a judgment call that day that it was reasonable to try to complete the task at hand after having discussed the risks, benefits, and alternatives of the surgical procedure, and ultimately... It's not that there's a zero percent chance. We, our attorneys and anyone in law, know that these are not. We're not working in definitive, uh, black and white situations. So I didn't tell them it's definitely you know not pursuable or or not a breach. But I said I would be very cautious because of the defense strategy would be very strong. uh, That this was a qualified judgment call. A known complication, albeit very, very uh, catastrophic for this patient. And so, what I was happy about, and the reason I thought about it is, I felt like I saved this attorney, uh, if not multiple retainer agreements with additional experts, and was able to kind of give a very uh, affordable, quick, consultative opinion on uh, on the matter.
1: Yeah. Uh, I think that uh, is well said. And I think what uh, you, maybe the the uh, attorney would want to go forward anyway, but I think you gave them the opportunity to save a tremendous amount of time, money, and uh, certainly on a questionable outcome for the
2: case. I agree. I felt I, I could stand by that opinion. Yeah. Well, what happened?
1: What Do you know what happened?
2: No, the, I don't. So... I, uh, he, he, didn't like, you know, Armin, our attorneys don't always, they, they we don't sure. expect to be kept up to date. Um, right. I know he certainly did not ask me for that referral to one of our experts. doesn't mean hmm. that he didn't pursue it separately.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. Well, that's a really good case. And yeah. I, I think it's uh, it's kind of subtle in a way, but I, I think you really teased out. So you, you were going, the, the whole purpose was to find the expert, but Really, what you found is this may, may not be something you want to pursue.
2: Yep, and Armin, it only it only took a couple hours. I mean, it was yeah. very affordable. <laughs> the, um, I'm pretty sure he wasn't so happy with the answer, but I'm pretty sure he was happy with the invoice.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, he probably was happy with the answer. Yeah, really. Yeah.
2: So let's let's jump topics. Let's talk about the uh, kind of a, a less commonly understood damage in in some of the cases that, that you've had experience with.
1: Yeah, great. Let's shift over. So as I said, I want to talk a little, just a little bit about depression that is related to trauma. And of course, as you know, Mike, certain psychiatric conditions are very, very common in trauma cases. In fact, depression and anxiety are extremely common problems after trauma. So f- for today, I want to focus uh, a little bit on depression. Now, depression is a common result of physical trauma and actually uh, accidents in general. So uh, what's depression, right? I, I don't mean, I'm not going to get into the right. biochemistry of it and all, but when somebody says they're depressed, what does that mean? Well, typically depression is characterized by uh, feeling low, feeling down and, and depressed, uh, trouble sleeping, trouble eating, uh, loss of sex drive, having intrusive thoughts that they can't get out of their mind. Not all not, and uh, depression is not all these things to all these people, but these are the symptoms that people get. Crying spells, difficulty concentrating, loss of attention span, also feelings of helplessness, feelings of hopelessness. Uh, inability to get pleasure out of things, having low self-esteem, loss of interest in uh, life and social activities and relationships, complaints of feeling overwhelmed, getting fatigued, irritability. And of course, in some uh, people, it's also going to include having suicidal thoughts. Now, particularly for our attorney and physician listeners, Um, you can break depression down into two main categories. Now, what I'm going to talk about, this characterization has absolutely nothing to do with making proper psychiatric diagnosis, diagnoses according to the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Psychiatry, where all all the diagnoses are outlined and how you make the diagnosis. But this, I think, is very helpful for attorneys when thinking about and conceptualizing their client's depression after trauma. So there is depression uh, that is caused by biochemical changes in the brain. And there is depression that is situational. Now, of course, in the final analysis, all Mm -hmm. depression, right, is biochemical. Uh, even Freud said that in in, uh, writing in 1905. But you can break depression down into this one seems pretty biochemical. This one seems related to the person's uh, life experience. So for example, there is depression that's biochemical that's caused by having a concussion. There is also depression Someone's in an auto accident, they have multiple injuries, their life is changed. So for example, they can't work. So due to stress, due to uh, financial loss, maybe marital discord, Mm -hmm. this person experiences depression, which is situational based on those things, but it's all related to the trauma that they experienced. So the first distinction that we, uh, you and I as consulting doctors, and hopefully the treating doctors are doing, is that they should determine if they think the depression is biochemical, situational, or it could be both. Then you want to determine the severity of the depression in terms of how much the depression is interfering with the activities of daily living, including the uh, client's ability to work, and also based on how many and how severe those symptoms are that I just mentioned a few minutes ago. Now, this is something of an oversimplification, but um, if we think the depression is situational, in other words, the client's depressed because they can't work. Well, then maybe psychological treatment, psychotherapy, talking treatment uh, may be all that's required. But if we think the depression is biochemical or the symptoms of the depression are very severe, then treatment by a psychiatrist, including probably taking medication, makes the most sense. Now, also, as we've discussed in our past episodes, it's not uncommon when we interview the, the client, and you know we're meeting with them for the very first time, typically by Zoom or maybe in person, that we'll be the first doctor to make that diagnosis of depression. Uh, because the treating doctors, they're all just working on their part of the case. And they may not be focused in on or the client may not talk about the fact that they're depressed. So let me give you uh, a couple of examples. So let's start with a client that's rear-ended in an auto crash. And the client's car is hit with even a moderate amount of force, but it's enough force that the client sustains mild traumatic brain injury. And we determine that's due to whiplash, the, the violent shaking of the head back and forth. And also the, the actual physical hitting of their head against the headrest. So this is an actual case. And then the next day, the client started to notice symptoms of depression that I mentioned a few minutes ago that got progressively worse. Now, that prob- that is going to be a biochemical depression. What I mean by that is the client's life could be absolutely great they love their life. They love their spouse. They have a great job. They have all kinds of relationships. There's no financial stress. But after this accident, all of a sudden, this person is feeling very depressed and maybe has some other symptoms of MTBI like memory loss and that kind of thing. So there are some very good papers that we can go to in the literature. And there's one paper, I actually want to quote it. So Uh, Major depressive disorder was observed in 33% of the patients during the first year after an MTBI. And major depressive disorder was significantly more frequent among these patients than it was against a control group of people that hadn't been involved in that uh, and had an uh, MTBI. and they go on to say in the article, major depression is a frequent complication of TBI that hinders the person's recovery. So that's
2: a... Yeah, go ahead. Armin, does d- depression diagnosis actually does have a time frame attached with it for how long the symptoms have to be present. Am, am I correct on that?
1: Um, well, the, Do, the symptoms can vary quite a
2: bit. So, But, but I, I just wondered if because you had mentioned that these symptoms do show up oftentimes very early, mm-hmm. but to actually get a physical or to get a diagnosis f- from the medical treating doc, and maybe I'm wrong. Is, is there a, a, a three-month or six-month requirement of persistence of symptoms, or is that is that not relevant? I might be completely off.
1: Yeah, no, I don't think that's relevant, okay. but you do bring up a really good point, and that is and we've talked about this a lot. When people are uh, have traumatic injuries, what gets focused on first are the most immediate things, broken bones, um, ruptured discs, uh, torn rotator cuffs. So even though the symptoms of the depression come on early, they're not reported in, in the medical records early. Uh, and then, uh, as the case progresses and some of the treatment occurs for those more immediate things, then the symptoms of depression uh, take center stage. And of course, uh, we know that opposing doctors and opposing counsel are going to say, well, well, wait a second, this didn't turn up in the medical records until three months later. So it's it's not accident-related. And we have to uh, help our attorney explain why it is.
2: I have at least a dozen of those cases where... Uh, the depression like you mentioned where depression was not initially on the attorney's list of, of impairments or functional losses and in the interview teasing out that the that the client is severely impaired and, and requires additional treatment and uh, diagnostic workup so you're I, I wasn't going to interrupt you because you you no, summarized good. that so well but I wanted to point out that in, in our reports uh, for me, that's also a very common.
1: Yeah. So I'm glad you actually said that. So I had three short cases I was going to talk about. Then I'm going to shorten this up so we don't go too long. But the other case that I was going to talk about that where it's biochemical depression, this was a workers comp case. And this woman worked at a big box store. Her, she was uh, tasked, to put these big planters on a metal, metal metal rack and move them across to a different part of the store. Well, unbeknownst to her and probably the store, there was an area of the floor of the store that was uneven. In other words, it sloped down to the right. And she didn't notice this. She pushes the cart, the cart falls over, right? So one of these big planters hits her in the head and then on the way down, the metal cart hits her in the oh. head. And she winds up uh, she had a, a torn rotator cuff, uh, you know, fell on her shoulder. But she also had some uh memory loss, but her her other main symptom was depression. Now, this is the this is exactly what we talked about. What was worked on first, the rotator cuff injury, right? But her biggest problem from this accident really was a debilitating depression and uh, she got labeled as a malingerer uh, that she was just driven by secondary gain you know that there were all kinds of accusations made but it was clear to me and uh, then we passed her on to a psychiatrist for treatment and to the treating doctor that this depression was directly related to being hit in the head twice, once by a really heavy planter and then smacked by a metal uh, cart uh, on the temporal side, on the side of her head. And that caused uh, biochemical changes. By the way, what happens is that, what we think happens is that the actual nerve cells have a long part of the cell called the axon. And these axons get sheared, and they get they get cut, cut broken. And when that happens, there are biochemical changes in the brain, and these biochemical changes lead to depression. And that's that's what I put in my
2: report. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Did you want to also share that third one before we yeah, wrap I'll, up?
1: Yeah, I'll quickly share the third one. So um, this is a case of... Uh, uh, an older woman. Uh, she was driving in the mountains. Uh, she uh, was uh, rear-ended. Uh, luckily, her car went into the mountainside and not off the cliffside, right? But she wound up with multiple injuries. She had to be um, flight for life uh, to a hospital from uh, where she crashed on I-70 in the mountains. Uh, and So she was dealing with multiple traumatic injuries. But when I talked to her on the phone, when I interviewed her, it was obvious. She hadn't hadn't mentioned it yet, but it was obvious to me that this woman was depressed. And actually, in the course of the conversation, she told me she was depressed. Mm -hmm. And what she was depressed about was the disruption to her life. Now her life was centered around going to doctors, getting treatment, going to physical therapy. She wasn't meeting with her friends anymore. And that's what made her depressed. So this, this wasn't a hit in the head kind of biochemical depression. This was a situational depression that was directly related to the trauma that she had. And actually there's a, there's a diagnosis for this. It's called major depression secondary to a medical condition. In this case, the medical condition was multiple traumatic injuries that then disrupted her life so greatly that uh, she developed a pretty significant uh, depression that uh, had nothing to do with obvious biochemical changes.
2: Great cases, so. Armin. Thanks for sharing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I could talk about depression for hours, but I just thought that uh, it it would be helpful to our attorney clients and others to uh, hear a little bit about that. It's another one of these. We had a a podcast episode called Invisible Injuries, right? We talked about PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. This can be another one.
2: Absolutely. And Good time to mention as we do wrap up that if anything from today's episode or if you have any question in general, again, our email is comments at com, and make sure that if you're watching us on YouTube, you can listen to us in the car uh, on our podcast where iTunes, Google Play, anywhere you listen to your podcast. If you're on the podcast and want to see what we look like, warning, it's not all that exciting. Our our looks are not all that staggering, but we do uh, like to connect via video. You can hop on YouTube, our channel. You can just search Physicians Helping Attorneys on YouTube and you'll find us. Make sure to subscribe to the channel. If you're on the podcast, uh, you can follow us. Uh, on your podcast to get updated for the most recent episodes, and on YouTube, click that subscribe bell, and you will get notified when we have new episodes. We we try to do these uh, about every other week, right, Armin?
1: Right, right. So. And uh, I think the final thing I'd say, Mike, is if you're attorney and if you have a case and or you have a question about a case, or you, you just think it might be helpful to run the case by uh, a physician. Uh, Get a hold of us at comments at physicianshelpingattorneys.com.
0: Thanks for listening to Physicians Helping Attorneys Helping People. For more information about the show and to listen to all the podcast episodes, go to physicianshelpingattorneys.com. You can also email Armin and Mike at comments at com.